acceptability. Willing to face the same kind of reproach for Jesus' sake. In other words, in our day, we must be willing to face the shame, faults, and occasionally the persecution that goes with being followers of Jesus Christ. You know what I'm talking about. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom will continue his current series with part two of The Eternal State, I Saw a New Heaven and a New Earth. We're looking at the magnificent promises of Scripture regarding the future of all who are in Christ Jesus, the new heaven and new earth. Last time you were challenged to think about heaven in a biblical way and to eagerly anticipate the world to come. Well, today, Tom will continue to encourage you to look forward to the future with Jesus and to identify and participate in the work He has called all believers to here and now. And you'll discover today, obedience to Jesus leads to a similar type of rejection that He Himself experienced while here on earth. Let's find out more now as we join Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. Isaiah 66, verse 22, For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. God says, I'm going to make a permanent world, a permanent universe, a new heaven and a new earth that I'll never destroy. It will always exist. And I'm going to ensure that. You turn to the New Testament. And you see this prophesied in Second Peter, the very passage we were just looking at, verse 13 of chapter 3. He says, but according to God's promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So both testaments promise that this current universe will be destroyed and a new universe will emerge like a phoenix from the ashes. A new heaven and a new earth. So what will it be like? Well, the Bible doesn't satisfy our curiosity on this front very much. It does give us a lot to think about and a lot to anticipate. First of all, and this is important, one thing the New Testament makes it clear is that it will be a real physical place. Our Lord has a glorified physical body that was able to be touched and to be felt that certainly wasn't limited in the way our bodies are limited, but nevertheless could eat food, could be recognized, we will as well, and we will live in a physical place, a real place. In John 14, Jesus referring to His departure. This is the night in the upper room before His crucifixion. He tells His disciples, He's just told them what's going to happen. And to comfort them, he says, listen, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So here Jesus says, I'm going to go in my glorified body, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to be somewhere, and I'm going to take you where I am. Talking about real places, not imaginary ones. Heaven are the new heavens and the new earth where 
heaven and earth are married together, as we'll discover next week, is a place. It's a real, physical place where you can put your feet on terra firma, as it were. Generally, it's described to be like God's presence. It is God's presence. Heaven is wherever God is. And since God's presence is always a place of unending, unmitigated joy, the eternal state will be as well. I love Psalm 1611. This is one of my favorite verses. This is what we can anticipate. This is heaven. This is the eternity that awaits us. This is the new heavens and the new earth. In your presence. If that's all the verse said, that would be enough, wouldn't it? In your presence. But it goes on to say, in your presence is fullness of joy. Absolutely overwhelming joy. Nothing like we can experience here. What we experience here in the most fulfilling, joyous moments of life are only faint, flickering shadows of the joys of heaven. And in your right hand, there are pleasures forever. If you want to know what the new heavens and the new earth will be like, generally speaking, there you have it in a nutshell. Fullness of joy. Pleasures forever in the presence of our God. The details that we have of the eternal state come almost exclusively and appropriately, I should say, from the last two chapters of our Bible. And I want to go through those in detail next week. But to finish our time together tonight, I want us to consider just a couple of implications of the reality that you and I are going to live in a new heavens and a new earth. How should this impact us? What difference should this make? The Bible doesn't give us prophecy to excite our curiosity. When the Holy Spirit, through the inspiration of the Spirit, through the writings of the Scripture, gives us anticipation of the future, it's for a purpose. So what is the purpose? What are the purposes? Well, here are just a couple to consider. First of all, don't get too connected to this world. Instead, stay focused on godliness and holy conduct and live in anticipation of our Lord's coming. You may still be in Second Peter. If not, turn back there. Second Peter chapter 3. Right after verse 10, we were just looking at of all that God is going to do in destroying this current universe. Notice what he says in verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. All what things? Everything. Everything around you. The only thing that will enter eternity is God and people. Think about that for a moment. Let me say that again. The only thing in your world that will enter eternity is God and the people around you. And he says, since everything else is to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? And then he answers the question. Here's what you really ought to care about. You ought to care about holy conduct and godliness. You ought to care about pleasing God. Because none of this other stuff matters. It's all going to be burned up. What are you giving your life for? And instead, verse 12 says, I want you to live looking 
I want you to live looking far and hastening. Both of those images have the idea of an eager anticipation of the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. So wait a minute, I'm supposed to eagerly look forward to that? You see, most of the world, for most of the world, the idea of the universe exploding in one great atomic cataclysm is a terrible thought. But for us, it's not. Because for us, we know that simply puts us closer home. Closer to the new heavens and the new earth. Notice what he says, verse 13. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. By the way, the word dwells there in the Greek text is an interesting word. It's a word that you could paraphrase this way. It's at home. It's a, it's a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness is perfectly at home. There's righteousness in this world. If you're in Christ, you carry righteousness with you because you have His righteousness. You also have what are called the righteous acts of the saints, the good works that we're supposed to demonstrate. There's righteousness in this world, but it sure doesn't belong here and it sure doesn't feel at home here. But there's coming a new heavens and a new earth when righteousness will be at home. So he says, live in anticipation of that. Let me just ask you, do you live in anticipation of that great reality. A second implication is understand that God intends for us to live in eager anticipation of being in our eternal home. This is like the first, but slightly different. God wants you to eagerly anticipate your eternal existence in the new heavens and the new earth. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 9. Let's start at verse 8. This, of course, is the great chapter recording the demonstration of the faith of the Old Testament saints, urging the Christians to whom the writer of Hebrews wrote to stay committed to faith, not to give up their pursuit of Christ, even in the face of the onslaught of Judaism around them. So he says in verse 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. In other words, in light of eternity, don't be so concerned with your circumstances here. Abraham lived with that expectation. He lived in tents. He never really got all that God promised that he and his descendants would get. He got, ultimately, the promise, of course, was fulfilled. God kept his word. But Abraham didn't see it. Notice, by the way, that some say verse 10 is talking about the earthly city of Jerusalem. That he was really eager to see himself established in the land of Israel. 
That's not at all what it's saying here. This is talking about eternal presence of God sort of stuff. Look at verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Abraham said, I'm just a stranger and an exile here. He wasn't at home in Israel any more than you and I are home in America. Verse 14. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Watch verse 16. Here's the key to the whole thing. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. You know what this is saying about Abraham? Abraham wasn't all into that piece of land over there in the Middle East. That wasn't what he was living for. He was living for a city that has foundations whose builder and architect is God. A heavenly city. That's what allowed him to live by faith and do what he did. And that's how we're to live as well. We're to live enduring the circumstances we face here looking for a city which has foundations whose builder and maker, builder and architect is God. When I travel internationally, and those of you who've traveled in remote areas internationally, and I don't often do that, but occasionally do that, sometimes I find myself in very difficult circumstances. This was especially true on several trips I took back in the 90s. I'm thinking of places like the Baptist Guest House in Calcutta, India. Thinking of the brutal, hot, tropical nights of Manila, a hostel in New Delhi, and many of you have faced far more difficult circumstances than those. One of the things that helps me deal with the difficult circumstances when I'm away and traveling is the fact that it's only a short time, and soon I'll be home, back with family, back in my own bed, back in the comforts that come with home, and that's exactly how we're supposed to think about our eternal home. God wants us to face whatever circumstances He calls us to face here, however difficult they may be, remembering that it's only for a short time and soon we'll be home. English Puritan Richard Baxter, in his book, The Saints' Everlasting Rest, wrote these words, why are not our hearts continually set on heaven? Why dwell we not there in constant contemplation? Bend your soul to study eternity. Busy yourself about the life to come. Habituate yourself to such contemplations. And let not those thoughts be seldom and cursory, but bathe yourself in heaven's delights. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity put it like this, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. And that's exactly right. A third implication that we have to consider is we must be willing 
in light of the new heavens and new earth, in light of our eternal home, to be willing to suffer the reproach of Christ here. Turn over a couple of pages to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13 and verse 13. Let's start back at verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, of course, talking here about His death, suffered outside the gate. Now, He's talking here about the reality that Jesus was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem. But He's implying more here. He's implying that Jesus was shut out from Judaism. He was shut out of the spiritual leadership of Israel. He suffered outside of Judaism. He was in a very real sense excommunicated as a heretic and a blasphemer. Of course, the tie-in is to the Old Testament. Those animals that were offered on the brazen altar as sin offerings, I talked about this morning, they were not eaten. You remember in some cases, some of the sacrifices were eaten. There was kind of a communal meal between the sacrificer and God. That didn't happen with sin offerings. Instead, the remnant of the animal that wasn't burned on the altar was burned outside the camp. And so the picture is of Jesus, our great sin offering, suffering outside the camp. But as I said, the picture is more than just outside the city of Jerusalem. It also implies outside of respectable religion, outside of respectability, outside of everything. Those to whom Hebrews was written were being called to leave Judaism as they knew it and go outside Israel, as it were. And with that exodus, or perhaps excommunication, came shame and reproach, just as it came to Christ, by being shunned by the Jewish establishment. And the writer of Hebrews is telling them, you must be willing to face it. Verse 13, let us go out to Him outside the camp, bearing His reproach. The writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, here's what I'm calling you to do. If you embrace Jesus Christ as your Messiah, it is going to put you outside of traditional Judaism. It's going to put you in a place where you are shunned by all who have loved you and with whom you have had intercourse through life. You must be willing to face it. Let us go outside the camp with Jesus, suffering the same reproach He did outside the establishment, outside acceptability. The same thing is true for us. We must be willing to face the same kind of reproach for Jesus' sake. In other words, in our day, we must be willing to face the shame, the ridicule, the insults, and occasionally the persecution that goes with being followers of Jesus Christ. You know what I'm talking about. As you walk past, someone smirks at the office. Maybe someone makes a crack about your being holier than thou. Jokes are told behind your back. How did they develop that kind of mindset in the writer of Hebrews' time? And how can we develop that kind of mindset? That we're willing to go outside the camp and suffer the reproach of Christ. Look at verse 14. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. We just learned a few minutes ago, back in chapter 11, what we're talking about here. We're talking about that great eternal city, the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal city that has foundations, whose builder and architect is God. We can go outside the camp and suffer reproach because we recognize that here in this world, 
We're just a passing through. We have no lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. That's how you develop a mindset. And I've often wondered this in my own life. If the Lord should bring more difficult times for Christians in our country, how do you, how do you face that? Here's how they faced it. Here's how the writer of Hebrews urged them to face it. Remember, this isn't where you belong. This isn't home. You're here for a short time. Endure what you have to endure here. Endure the suffering. Endure the reproach with your eyes on the city which has foundations whose builder and architect is God. I've not had to do this, but I can tell you that saints through the history of the church have clung to this very truth. One of those is a man named John Bradford. He lived in the 1500s. Less than five months before he was burned to death, burned at the stake for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is what he wrote to a friend. This is what kept him faithful and true to God. He wrote, I am assured that though I am in want here, I have riches there. Though I hunger here, I shall have fullness there. Though I faint here, I shall be refreshed there. And though I be counted here as a dead man, I shall there live in perpetual glory. You know what Bradford was saying? He was saying, listen, I can endure the conditions here, whatever comes, because I'm on my way home. You know, as we study what the Bible teaches about our final home, it's difficult for us to really grasp it and to really be attracted to it. To understand how attractive our eternity will be, how wonderful, how beautiful, how overwhelmingly joyful. It's impossible, really, for us to fully comprehend. C.S. Lewis, Lewis likens our desire to cling to this life to the little boy who, when offered all the joys of married love in exchange for his candy bar, decides to cling to his candy bar. Why? Because he knows he enjoys the one, but he has no categories with which to evaluate the other. I don't know about you, but there's much here in this world that I think is spectacularly beautiful. And it's hard for me to imagine something that I would like so much better. Here's one way. I've tried to help myself think of this in recent days. To think of the similarity of this world to the next one. One of my favorite places on the planet, on this planet, is Yosemite. If you've ever been there, you've likely taken the drive up through the southern entrance to the park along a winding road for some 30 miles, thinking that you will never get to those really super spectacular views that you've seen all your life. And then you come upon a tunnel. After 30 miles of winding road, you come to this tunnel. And for about a quarter mile, you drive through this rock tunnel cut right through the heart of a mountain. It's dark and relatively unattractive. And then suddenly, after that quarter mile, you emerge from the tunnel. And before you lies the expansive view of Yosemite Valley floor. And it just takes your breath away. Think of this world with all of its beauty and all of its joys as the tunnel. If you had grown up all of your life 
in the tunnel and it's all you knew, you would appreciate certain things about it. It would have a beauty to you all of its own. Certain of its places would hold wonderful memories. And it would in certain ways give you a glimpse of the glory of the Creator. But someday, when our Lord makes a new heaven and a new earth, it will be like stepping out of that tunnel into the full expression of His beauty and His creative power. That's a world worth waiting for and worth living for. And according to the Word of God, it's just around the next turn. Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.